Hey, it's Liz Kelly, and welcome to the Ringer Podcast Network. Patrick Mahomes and the Kansas City Chiefs are Super Bowl champions, so for coverage of the game and everything that happened in Miami, check out the Ringer NFL show for their game recap. And on the site, you can read Danny Heifetz on Andy Reid, Roger Sherman on Patrick Mahomes, and Robert Mays on Kyle Shanahan's Super Bowl Deja Vu. On the Ringer's YouTube channel, make sure to check out Slow News Day with Kevin Clark live from Miami with a bunch of special guests like Miles Teller and Glenn Powell. You can watch and subscribe at youtube.com slash the ringer. David, Donald Trump congratulated the Super Bowl winning Kansas City Chiefs. Uh by implying that they play in the state of Kansas rather than Missouri. What I want to know is, isn't this one of those things we should forgive Trump for? (laughs) Do we really think that everyone knows that the Chiefs play in Missouri rather than Kansas? I went to college with a bunch of folks from Kansas City, Missouri, and I believe I was surprised to learn from all of them that they weren't from the state of Kansas. I also, pri- I mean, grew up for most of my life thinking that every time that every professional sports team with Washington in the title was in Washington State. So <laughs> I do feel like if anybody, if, if if we are ever inclined to give Trump the benefit of the doubt, this might be that moment. What do you think? Absolutely. This reminds me of Ukraine versus the Ukraine, where everybody <laughs> pretended to know after we'd had the you know nationwide explainer. I, I was at the Super Bowl press box. I'm guessing if I went around and just polled sports writers, and these are football writers by and large, and said, what state do the Chiefs play in? I bet 70% of people would have gotten that right. <laughs> 70. Maybe 75. I mean, a lot of them have been there, so maybe, maybe that helps. But yeah, I just, I think that's one of those things where everybody has a has a nice laugh and then quickly goes to the Wikipedia page to check themselves so that they can pretend they knew all along. And again, we, we don't forgive Trump for many things, but I think you have to pick your spots. And, and this is one of them. We are the Panama City, Florida of media podcasts. This is the Press Box, a part of the Spa, Spa Ringer Podcast Network. media consumers brian curtis and david shoemaker here lots and lots to get to today we'll talk about rush limbaugh his health and the presidential medal of freedom we'll talk about nancy pelosi tearing up a copy of the state of the union by the way if you just woke up from a 10-year coma yes all of this is real it all happened this week (laughs) we'll also size up mitt romney impeachment hero say a word about spotify and do the overworked twitter joke of the week But David, we got to start with Iowa because Iowa has not ended. If you were just paying attention to this story, the Iowa State Democratic Party had an app it chose as the tool with which its precinct people were going to report the results of Monday's caucuses. The app was untested, but the party just said, let's just do it and be legends. And it has taken (laughs) all week to figure out who really won Iowa. As of Thursday night, the AP said it could not declare a winner of the caucuses because there was, quote, evidence the Iowa Democratic Party has not accurately tabulated some of its results. DNC Chair Tom Perez called for recanvassing the entire state and then sort of backed off that a little bit. 
David, we're left with two candidates that sort of won Iowa based on the latest results. If you count the vote the way the media normally does, which is by state delegate equivalents or SDEs, then former Mayor Pete Buttigieg has seemingly won a narrow victory, at least for now. If you count who showed up and said they wanted to vote for, which is how we count almost every other statewide election in the United States, then Bernie Sanders won Iowa. And that may be all the clarity we get before New Hampshire votes on Tuesday. Am I wrong in thinking that at least in media terms, the way this is kind of being filtered and projected out through cable news and other places, that this is playing as slightly more of a quote-unquote win for Mayor Pete than it is for Bernie? I think I think yes. Despite you know Mayor Pete's strong polling numbers in Iowa leading up to um, the caucus there, I think that there was like a, a fairly reasonable or a fairly widely accepted narrative in which this was you know if he if he that he would come in third or fourth and that would sort of signal the beginning of the end for his campaign. Um, certainly, you know his numbers were not as good as Bernie Sanders uh, poll numbers leading up to the leading up to, you know, the caucus. So the fact that he won, um, well, by, you know, conventional metrics certainly is a win for him. It's a, it's a good look for him. And in media terms, you know, to be really specific about it, I mean, I feel like the media is, if not, you know, I'm not not necessarily like the, the the real mainstream media. Like I'm not talking about just the hard reporters at the New York Times and the Washington Post and wherever else. But there is, you know, TV media especially, as you know, it still is trying to wrestle with a pretty inherent anti Bernie Sanders bias. And um and I think that that Buttigieg sort of, you know, emerging as the victor certainly helps him in those corners. Yeah, we, we, we said on Monday night when we were trying to do a post-Iowa podcast that was not actually post-Iowa, that whatever happened, it was going to reopen the Pandora's box, if that box ever closed, by the way, of the deck is stacked against Bernie. Mm-hmm. The DNC is stacked against party. The, the Democratic Party regulars are stacked against Bernie. Right. And that's exactly what happened. Let's, 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 let's talk about Mayor Pete first, because... As you say, it was a pretty remarkable victory. I think the thinking was a little bit that he had sort of topped out near the end of the year or maybe a little bit into January and that Bernie had more momentum going into the actual caucuses. Couple mm-hmm. One interesting thing that happened was Jonathan Martin, the New York Times pointed this out the weekend before, which is last weekend, Pete Buttigieg was all over television yeah. and seemingly no other candidate was on television. He said yes to every interview, all those political shows, cable news was hungry to get any candidate on ahead of the caucuses. He said yes to everything and seemingly had all of television to himself. The same thing has happened this week. He's been on the view. He did a TMZ interview and not, I don't think it was one of those, you know, we caught mayor Pete walking out of a diner in New Hampshire interviews. And I'm not sure how he figured this out by himself. Kamala Harris's press secretary, Ian Sam, says, why are none of the other candidates flooding the media zone like Pete Buttigieg? It's baffling. 
And I guess that's part of one. He obviously likes to do interviews because he said yes to just about everything in this campaign, partly because he's got a better story to tell coming out of Iowa than some of these other candidates. But I have no doubt that that helped him, at least on the margins. That's definitely true. Um, You know, I think that there's whether or not it's a campaign strategy or just sort of a, you know, whether there's other factors in play, you can certainly start at the top and see that, like, and understand why it's a little bit easier for a young insurgent candidate to say yes to everything, to appear on even the kind of smallest uh, television show, uh, whereas that'd be more of a, uh, you know, an optics issue for Vice President Joe Biden to show up on, you know, just like a regional politics program. <laughs> um but yeah, I mean, he's he he did everything, and it's and and you know, once you setting aside Biden, it's it is sort of um, amazing that he outmaneuvered or outyessed um, Elizabeth Warren and uh, Sanders. I, it's 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 pretty. It's a it's a great question why why no one else did it, and I think that you know, there's probably a lot of there's probably a lot of very boring answers, um, starting with their obligations and our nation's capital. But, um, but yeah, I think we'll see, I, th- I think we'll, we'll see a lot of, um, candidates react to that going forward. There's new Suffolk poll of New Hampshire out that shows Bernie Sanders and Pete Buttigieg in basically a dead heat, 24% to 23% followed by Warren at 13 and Biden at 11. Uh, the CBS write-up of that poll that I saw began with the sentence, who's your daddy now? Like oh. Indiana Hoosiers. whatever you think about the candidates we can all agree that that's terrible and should never happen (laughs) (laughs) it's a good argument that the buddha judge candidacy should end right now so we never have to hear that pun again i guess sort of um i think one thing about buddha judge is that there's almost no margin for error he has to win new hampshire because this guy does not have yet a broad coalition he doesn't have a broad base of support in national polls so he has to keep winning Bernie Sanders is in kind of an interesting spot. Um, He also came out of Iowa and I think somewhat rightfully declared victory. Let's listen to a little bit of his attempt to turn half an Iowa victory into a whole one. Why should people believe your victory speech over his? Because I got 6,000 more votes. And from where I come, when you get 6,000 more votes, that's generally regarded to be the winner. We won a very significant victory in the popular vote. We won a very significant victory in the realignment vote. And if you go out on the streets to New Hampshire, you go to Vermont, and you ask people, how do you determine who wins an election? Well, from where I come from and where everybody else comes from, the person who gets the most votes wins. We got the most votes. It's a compelling argument. (laughs) It's also the argument that Democrats use when, you know, they win the popular vote and lose the presidency. Because you know, you, whatever one you win, you insist that that is the true measure of the people. And I have a feeling if Bernie Sanders had won the SDEs, he'd be trumpeting that too. Bernie Sanders is not, uh, to be clear, driving around the country with a on a bus with Straight Talk Express painted on the side. But Bernie, but he, but he is a candidate that is, uh, I think, very well known and justifiably well regarded for being a straight shooter, right? Being honest, uh, even in the face of uh, the the uh, that honesty becoming problematic for him. Um, this is a really this is a, a, a really dumb move for him to be disassembling over votes like this. Um, not just because 
any you're right this is the same argument that everybody makes when they lose an election um but he's just like utterly incorrect about this if this were a, it, where he comes from it's a, if there's a regular primary voting process there'd be a whole different electorate it'd be like there there'd be millions more people voting you know i mean it's not you can't just say we're we're doing we're we're going to count votes one way and then like pick a different way to count them afterwards um, especially when it's like th- when you're working in such a bizarro world as the caucus process. Now, maybe the Iowa caucus shouldn't be our <laughs> the first time we uh, we we rank we formally rank our primary uh, contestants. Uh, sure, but to say that like the six thousand vote margin, I mean, he has a, actually he actually has a stronger case. If you want to dissemble, the stronger case was more people came in picking him on the first ballot, right? Than than Buddha judge. I mean that that at least is like within ballot. the ca- and the second ballot. We, yeah, but within the confines of the primary structure, that's meaningful. But just to like wait to, to like tally up the votes at the end, I don't think is particularly meaningful. And I think that Bernie Sanders, in particular, uh, is the, is the sort of candidate that I that that I think will suffer more from. If if anybody notices this, he's the sort of candidate that'll suffer from just sort of marginal dishonesty because he's so contrary to that so much of the time. Nate Silver points out that Sanders' polling is pretty flat in New Hampshire since Iowa which Silver writes is more consistent with what you'd expect from what is perceived as a second place finish in Iowa rather than a tie or a win. But Bernie Sanders is in great shape right now. He sure According is, yeah. to Silver's magic machine, he has now the best odds to win the nomination or I guess win the majority of pledged majority of delegates. 45%. 45%, right? That's pretty good in a crowded field. The second yeah. most uh, the second biggest chance is no one winning more than half of pledged delegates at 25%, and then Biden back at 20 and on down. So, you know, Bernie is going into New Hampshire from his part of the country, uh, a state he won last time, and I'd feel great about his chances. I just think it's, you know, if he'd won an outright victory in Iowa, I mean, I think in a way, you could argue that Bernie had a very good possible result because none of the centrists dropped out. The results were so muddled that, you know, you still have everybody in the race. Amy Klobuchar is still in the race Mm -hmm. despite finishing fifth. And, you know, maybe if Iowa had been a little cleaner, you'd have people drop out and Bernie, you know, centrist support could consolidate behind somebody. It's not right now. And as much momentum or whatever we're calling what Judge has, everybody's still in the race. Also in the race, David, is Joe Biden. We got to talk about him because he had the worst night in Iowa. Mm-hmm. If you're a front runner and you lose, the glow of front runnerdom fades really, really quickly. Here's Biden acknowledging the walloping he got in Iowa. I am not going to sugarcoat it. We took a gut punch in Iowa. The whole process took a gut punch. But look, uh, this isn't the first time in my life I've been knocked down. Whenever any presidential candidate loses, and this is not to demean Biden's personal tragedies, but whenever any presidential candidate loses, they say it's not the first time in their life they've gotten knocked down. That is sure. just, there is a, there's a manual they hand out at the beginning of the, at the race that says you must say that when you lose. More alarming for Biden. On Thursday, he was off the trail in New Hampshire, huddling with advisors. Huddling with advisors is a really bad sign. Yeah. I was also intrigued. There was a piece in New York Times that laid out all the mistakes he made in Iowa. The biggest of which was the mistake you and I noted and everybody else noted at the time was 
he just seemed to be running this campaign where he wasn't really campaigning all that much. His bus tour, mm-hmm. that no malarkey tour, and I think it got rebranded as something else at some point, happened way late in the process. And he just, whether because of, you know, some kind of perceived front runner dumb or because of, you know, very real fears about what kind of campaigner he was, he was not out among the people. And he got outworked by both Sanders and Buttigieg. And again, and, and Warren too, for that matter. And if Biden, if, if he had that kind of poor showing again for a former vice president, it's not his best state. It didn't line up to be his best state, but still that bad a showing that's got to be part of what got him there. Yeah. And Buttigieg, I mean, as discussed was, uh, you know, Something of a surprise, Victor, but not like this. It wasn't stunning and it wasn't a huge shock. Um, it's not like, you know, some of the the out of nowhere victors of years past. Um, this, even, you know, this isn't Jimmy Carter, you know, like starting his, his run to the presidency. Um, Rick Santorum. Fell, Rick Santorum. Yeah, exactly. Um, it doesn't, I, I guess what I'm trying to say is it, you know, the results were not shocking uh, for anyone except for Joe Biden. You know, I mean, this this wasn't just some just giant upheaval of the status quo. This was Joe Biden failed. And you could hear from the way he talked about it. I mean, it's really hard to, as much as, you know, candidates always try to spin what happened in their, you know, in, in a positive way. He was, he you know, in his post-Iowa comments were pretty straightforward. He was pretty straightforward. He was like, I kind of expected more of my campaign there. You know, I expected more of like the people on the ground. I expected more, expected we'd just do better. And, um, uh, you know, I don't know if, if this is a, a larger structural, you know, kind of campaign issue for him. If these are, if the people that he has running the show really thought that things were going to go in a different way, uh, this, this could be, you know, the first sign of a complete campaign catastrophe for him. But, you know, we'll, I guess we'll, we'll know a lot more the next time we talk. I think it probably is because one, he doesn't have very much money. It was noted before Iowa that after first kind of insisting that he really didn't need to win Iowa because it wasn't, it wasn't his state. You know, the, his support was more, you know, clustered in a place like South Carolina. He, his campaign started pouring money into Iowa with Mm -hmm. a combination of, I think of thinking one, maybe we can win this and two, we can't afford to lose it. And then he lost it and he not only lost it, he finished fourth. So that's a mess. I got to say those results do kind of validate what everybody was thinking about the Biden campaign, Mm -hmm. that his support wasn't very enthusiastic, that the candidate has not been very good. His debates have been somewhere between middling and awful. And Mm -hmm. there's been no sign, you know, in reporting or again, just with your own eyes that he has any kind of organizational advantage or even organizational, you know, equality with the other campaigns, just none. And I think I, even I talked myself a little bit into, wow, he's just kind of coming over the top in this way that I don't quite understand through just a, through just some memory of him or his old magic or whatever it is, but nope, he's fourth place. Everything we thought about Joe Biden's campaign turned out to be true. Yeah, and that's so much worse for him than it is for anyone else. You know, and we've seen campaigns, you know, tear down their infrastructure, you know, fire the campaign managers, hire somebody else. I mean, Trump did it right a couple of times, but um, 
it's a it just feels particularly ominous for Joe Biden. Um, even for like, you know, a relatively well-informed voter who's like trying to decide who they're who they're going to pick. I mean, if you if you I'm sure I've said this before, but if you, you have such an advantage from the starting position, right? I mean, you are the former vice president, your name recognition's over the, you know, out, uh, out of this world. Um, presumably you have your pick of the litter of most campaign consultants and 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 operatives, right? I mean, you have you have personal relationships with presumably with everybody that that won you know that that won Obama. I mean, that helped Obama win. Um, and your, but and, and your managerial prowess, which is you know part of what you're running on, has gotten you this. Has gotten you like the, I mean, with all with all those opportunities, like this is what you end up with. It just feels like. It just feels like this level of miscalculation is is like the is it just is just terrible for someone like joe biden yeah you have your pick of the best operatives unless you take your time and dither and dither about getting into the race and -hmm. those operatives go work for someone else by the way is exactly what happened and his the managerial thing about joe biden you're right that is part of the kind of public perception of him is that is there ever any evidence that that's been the case no absolutely not the Obama White House was super organized. I never got a sense that Joe Biden was a driving force in that. No, but I think that no, I, I, you're you're completely right. I mean, that's and that's sort of the point that I'm making. I mean, listen, th- there's no the fact that he was caught flat footed by the Hunter Biden stuff coming from Trump uh, is is another, you know, X in that column. But the fact that he I mean, but he, when you're running on when you're when your platform is basically this is just like the third term of the Obama administration, except that. There's been an incredible amount of brain drain from the Obama administration, and most of the smart people are working for other campaigns or on television right now. I mean, that's a really that that's that is it it just defeats the entire argument. My old friend Dana Stevens, movie critic over at Slate, tweeted this out. She was reacting to a Nate Silver tweet. I thought this was fascinating. She writes, once you start noticing this, you see it everywhere speculative punditry about the election that simply leaves out any mention of Elizabeth Warren being a candidate at all. Mm -hmm. I think she's right. Generally speaking, Um, whenever something like that happens, number one on my list is just general misogyny (laughs) in America because it's true. true. Mm -hmm. Um, Number two, I think in this case is that she's in this sort of weird twilight zone where she finished third. I think it was, it 100% counts as a disappointing result for her, especially mm-hmm. since she worked so hard in Iowa. Iowa again, lined up demographically very well for Elizabeth Warren. You could have imagined her winning it back in October when she was ahead in the polls. Mm-hmm. And now she's sort of seemingly kind of stuck in the twilight zone in New Hampshire. Again, a state that lines up well for her being from Massachusetts. Same thing with the Nevada caucuses beyond the twilight zone in, in South Carolina, where she's not expected to do particularly well. And her campaign, and again, as as Dana points out, just in media terms, just seems to be fading in a weird way. What do you chalk that up to? Uh, misogyny, for sure. Um, you know, in, in media in media terms, there we're always pressing for uh, the narrative and 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 trying to sort of like simplify the simplify the field so the narrative is a little bit clearer right i mean it, this is the point where where journalists are, are trying to disqualify people or trying to trying to chart a path forward that's simpler than it was yesterday um warren's campaign's a little bit hard to grapple with i think for, for a lot of different 
a lot of different reasons. I think that the the perceived overlap with Sanders voters has uh, been you know works against her because if Sanders is way out in front, then I think the assumption is that um, it's just a matter of time before she drops out and all her voters go to him. Um, but in reality, I'm not sure it's that simple. And I think it's I think it's a bad idea to, to count her out. I think I think it's not just you know reckless in terms of polling and and vote count and money raised and everything else. But I think it's just impractical um you know the iowa caucus system was on full display this week obviously mostly for uh its negatives but i think that if you know before the the vote tallying actually you know everything went to shit um we were exposed to a kind of a very interesting process um it's been going on forever it's not new but as we talked as we talked about earlier this week it was on it was you know plastered all over the news and and what you saw a lot was just the sort of irrationality or unpredictability of voters, right? That when there were a lot of people who walked in and they said, I'm a, I'm voting for Bernie, but if Bernie, you know, if Bernie doesn't come, you know, go past the first round, I'm switching to Mayor Pete. Now those candidates have nothing in common, right? I mean, by the, by the (laughs) metrics that we would normally use. Yes. And I think that to, I think that to put Sanders, I mean, and, and that's not just Iowa. That's how the world, that's how the country, that's how the world operates. That's how people make their decisions, which is to say, we don't know how they make their decisions. But I definitely think that you can make the case that, like, if Pete Buttigieg had just disappeared from the face of the earth two days before the Iowa caucus, Warren would have picked up a lot of those votes because she's they kind of are both new newish faces on the presidential race scene, right? Um, and and there's a lot of different ways you can like spin this, and a lot of ways you can look at it. But um, you know, this might be an endurance race. Uh, I, I mean, if 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 Sanders or Buttigieg has just like a shockingly dominant win in New Hampshire. That will probably change the tenor of everything. But I do, but it does feel like this is going to be a little bit of an endurance race because as soon as one of the top four drop out, and I'm not even thinking about Mike Bloomberg right now, but as soon as one of those top four drop out, somebody's going to do it eventually. That's going to be a huge boost to, 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 pres- to presumably all three of them, but that could be a huge boost to whoever's right there at the bottom with them. So, you know, Maybe Elizabeth Warren's the first one to drop out, and maybe all this, all these assumptions are right. But her invisibility is pretty, pretty galling up till now. There's a debate tonight, 8 p.m. Eastern, for those interested, and we'll be back, press box wise, Tuesday night after New Hampshire. Uh, we hope there will be votes to count, but but you know what? If if this if this campaign has taught us anything, we we may just bring some other material and talk about Tony Romo or something. All right, David, time to talk about the overworked Twitter joke of the week where we celebrate a gag that was so obvious that all of media Twitter made it at exactly the same time. Send your nominees to at the press box pod where they are always gratefully received. Let us begin with those Iowa non results, specifically the bits that came out of them. Here are a few of my favorites. Maybe the real winner of the Iowa caucus is the friends we made along the way. That was kind of <laughs> um, congrats to the 62% winners. That was the number of votes that came out a day later. The Iowa caucus should have used a Google doc. Actually, the film <laughs> Moonlight won the Iowa caucus and a personal favorite calling it Schrodinger's caucus. <laughs> Schrodinger's caucus. That's 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 highbrow. Thanks to J.W., Justin Franz, James Ash, and Andrew Redston. David, remember that New York Times needle that drove everybody nuts on election night in 2016? It points to whom the Times thinks will win the election. Well, as the Iowa results sort of trickled in this week, it was pointing to an almost certain Buttigieg win in the aforementioned SDEs. 
Then it wasn't. And everybody started cursing it again. It was an overworked Twitter joke to write. I've seen the needle and the damage done. Take it away, Neil Young. I've seen the needle and the damage done. A little part of it in everyone. But every junkie. Did we get that joke in 2016? I don't know. Did we? It seems like we must have, but I don't remember that. It seems like it was out there for the taking. Thanks you to uh, Matthew Zeitlin. In football news, David, Donald Trump congratulated the Kansas City Chiefs on winning the Super Bowl by writing, oh, man. you represented the great state of Kansas. And in fact, the entire USA so very well. In fact, of course, the Chiefs play in Missouri. It was an overworked Twitter joke to write, Toto, we're not in Missouri anymore. <laughs> Pretty good. Also uh, acceptable drawing one of those fake Trump hurricane maps that gerrymandered <laughs> Kansas City, Missouri into Kansas. Thanks to our pals Zach Brooks and Jacob oh, Bixorn for that one. And finally, David, this comes from our friend Scott Tobias. The Hill, <laughs> and any tweet from The Hill is just fodder for jokes, right? Because who knows whether that's true or not. The Hill tweets, U.S. drops to eighth place on the best countries list <laughs> okay a place on the best countries list it was an overworked twitter joke to write oh great on top of everything else we got to play the bucks in the first round of the playoffs <laughs> if you oh, conveniently help the press box blend politics and nba news congrats you made the overworked twitter joke of the week david in the notebook dump let us talk about rush limbaugh Oof. this was the longtime conservative radio host speaking to listeners on monday so I have to tell you something today that I wish I didn't have to tell you. And it's it's a struggle for me because I I had to inform my staff earlier today. I can't escape, even though telling people are telling me it's it's not the way to look at it. I, I can't help but feel that I'm letting everybody down with this. But the upshot is that I have been diagnosed with advanced lung cancer. Diagnosis confirmed by two medical institutions back on January 20th. Uh, first realized something was wrong on my birthday weekend, January 12th. And I wish I didn't have to tell you this. And I thought about not telling anybody. I thought about trying to do this without anybody knowing, because I don't like making things about me, but there are going to be days that I'm not going to be able to be here because I'm undergoing treatment or I'm reacting to treatment. Rush Limbaugh to me, David, created or anticipated so much of our modern media. Mm -hmm. let, let me read you some bullet points. One, the talk radio boom that started in the late 80s and has really never stopped, you know, even in the age of podcasts and the age of everything else. Number two, he created the archetype not only for the news radio host, but I think the sports radio host in a lot of ways. Colin Coward is the Rush Limbaugh of sports radio. And I say that not as an insult to either man. Mike Francesa mm -hmm. has Limbaugh-esque qualities. They're inhabiting a character who, if you find him charming, what you find charming is 
the self-confidence and self-absorption, right? Talent on loan from God is what Rush used to say, maybe still says. Mm-hmm. One of his books was called See, I Told You So, right? <laughs> and that just sense of self and irrational confidence, whatever you want to call it, is channeled into this radio show where a guy has the ability to carry a radio program by himself for hour after hour Mm -hmm. by yourself. We can barely get through 45 minutes of this with two of us. And this dude's been doing that, that for 30 plus years. Again, whatever you think of, whatever you said, all that stuff, we'll get to that in just a minute. That is just an incredible to be able to make that compelling. Yeah. And again, he, when he comes onto the scene and get, and gets famous, I think that lays out a template for a whole bunch of people, both in the politics world and out of the politics world. Yeah. I mean, he, listen, it is, I can't disagree with any of that. Um, I mean, there's a lot of what you were talking about. You, you mentioned Colin Coward, you mentioned Mike Francesa. We've had this exact same conversation about Coward, about uh, Stephen A. Smith, about just the, 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 about volume production being an amazing skill in and of itself right um but to but and also in terms of coward and Stephen a smith i mean you can see you can certainly see how um you know the world we've talked about this with with Stephen a recently the 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 world's kind of come around on them um because you know in large part because they did um anticipate so much of what was to follow now maybe they set the mold and you can make that case for limbaugh too you'd have to say that a huge number of the people doing conservative talk radio or or definitely liberal talk radio um, were directly influenced by him, directly trying to do what he was doing. Um, but, you know, so so whether or not they, you know, caused the boom or or just, just solely anticipated it, it's sort of beside the point. They, he's, he's a, he was definitely a trailblazer in his way. Um, you know, you never... This is a this is a sad story. Yeah, I mean it's 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 um, I, I don't think we would have ever found cause to have like a purely positive segment on Rush Limbaugh on this show, um, but you know it's it, it's that that clip you played is is hard to listen to. The fourth thing on my list here is the political rhetoric of 2020. That is the right wing political rhetoric of 2020. Either comes from or was anticipated by Rush Limbaugh too. Right. Oh, yeah. A lot of people like to point to Newt Gingrich's ascendancy as the moment when that sort of whatever, whatever real or fake gentility melted away. No, 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 no. (laughs) It's it's rush in talk radio. Absolutely. The racism, the misogyny, feminazis. Remember that one being a big thing back in the day for any, yeah. which I guess was a feminist. That was shocking back in the day. No, it's just shocking like a back speech. in the day. There are, if you want to, if you want to dial up any media matters, uh clip of his lowlights, which I just accidentally did as we were coming onto this podcast, you can hear tons more. Like there's a direct line from rush to Trump and not just in what he's saying, but right in the tone, the sarcasm, you know, the gleeful way the insult to a person, group, whomever is delivered. Yeah, and I think I think the tone is the most important thing of everything you said. The other thing that that I think is really important is the 
kind of um, just willful denial of reality. <laughs> uh, I mean, yeah. the, the sort of like reading argue- your own reality. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, if I can argue it, 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 it's true. Sort of line of thought, um, and it's. Um, I think the first time I think I think Rush Limbaugh, I mean, in his in his early prime was the first time that we largely dealt with that. Right. We wrestled with that as a as a culture, as a as a, you know, in, in the sort of political sphere. And that, like, if he's knowingly twisting the truth to make his point, if he can make a if you make an argument that sounds good on the radio, as long as nobody fact checks it, um, what do you do with that? How do you how do you combat that? How do you um how do you argue against that? Are you obligated to do the same thing on the other side? Uh, if you're, you know, if you want any chance at like winning the the war of ideas, uh, it's uh, it's no one knew what to do then. It, it, you could see a lot of the echoes of that in Trump's candidacy four years ago, when no one quite knew how to fact check him on television when he was giving these speeches. Yeah, I just yeah, definitely on that scale, right? That that when you talk about that sort of self-contained media world. Because when he comes to the fore, the world is still a world of newspapers and network television shows. And, you know, Rush is this guy who's building this gigantic audience on talk radio. He writes best-selling books, right? And this is a time when, I don't know what, a couple hundred thousand people at most are subscribing to National Review or something like that. Mm-hmm. He's got this giant audience. Way, way, way bigger. And, you know, somebody who, again, I remember in the 1992 presidential campaign, you know, he was, you know, supporting George H.W. Bush, of course, but torn about George H.W. Bush. Like he was just a big player in that in the way that Sean Hannity or somebody is now. Yeah. To piggyback on that, too, it's the the fear of running contrary to somebody with that level of influence and power. Right. I mean, there like that that was a going concern. 10 years ago that like someone at the national review would be like concerned about what rush limbaugh about, about going after rush limbaugh for fear that he would turn the entire potential audience against them right and uh and now obviously we see that on a much um more prominent scale with uh with the president the other thing about him is creating this whole weird language that you had to listen to the show repeatedly to understand some of this also veered <laughs> into the offensive zone, but like mega dittos, you know, mm-hmm. that was, that was what I'm right. Um, I mentioned talent on loan from God. I'm looking at the Wikipedia list here. Lindsey Gramnesty. <laughs> that was a thing. Again, I can't, I can't actually read many of these, but there was this whole, this whole sort of language that, he said that so listeners are waiting for the catchphrase. And again, he didn't invent that, but you know, that's probably like, you know, back before Wolfman Jack and, you know, some guy on the, you know, NBC blue network back in the day, but he, he sort of milked that, right? You have to listen to the show. I'm going to, I'm going to throw this stuff out there. And if you are a loyal ditto head to use another one of his listeners, you will, you will uh, you will know what I'm talking about, and this will be our own private language. We bring up Rush, David, because he became a part of the State of the Union 
By the way, low-key overworked Twitter joke saying that Mark Burnett was the showrunner of this year's State of the Union, <laughs> which including all these set pieces. Here's Donald Trump giving an award to Limbaugh, one of his biggest allies. Here tonight is a special man, beloved by millions of Americans, who just received a stage four advanced cancer diagnosis. This is not good news, but what is good news is that he is the greatest fighter and winner that you will ever meet. Rush Limbaugh, thank you for your decades of tireless devotion to our country. Nancy Pelosi said later that when she heard the president talk about cancer, she thought he was going to talk about John Lewis, congressman and civil rights hero. And instead, he went to Rush Limbaugh, who stood up in the balcony there. Speaking of Nancy Pelosi, David, she was the other biggest story of the State of the Union. Mm -hmm. Uh, Started out uh, with a kind of different introduction of the president. There was a moment where she offered him a handshake. Trump did not accept the handshake. Uh, but the big, her big set piece was ripping up a copy of the speech <laughs> after it was over. Is there anything we need to add to this other than this is Democrats asking, how do we do our own version of Trump? Right? We're not going to do the misogynistic racist thing. We're not going to get your attention that way. But we're going to do something shocking that's going to win our corner of Twitter. Yeah. We're gonna, it's, it's Trumpian stagecraft. Right. I don't I don't want to I don't not this is this is not a both sides do it kind of thing. It is, you, go, you go elsewhere for that. What I'm just saying is Trumpian stagecraft that's going to cut through the noise after a speech like this and get everybody's attention. Uh, Yeah, I think cutting through the noise may be the, the key thing. It's like it doesn't really matter if the if the reaction is positive or negative. It just matters that there's a reaction. And you certainly heard. Um, I felt like I heard a whole lot of people reacting kind of having this sort of meta conversation about it on television, you know, just like how, like having the same conversation we're having now, how should one feel about this? What was she going for? And I think that probably in, in Trump terms, that's a win in and of itself, right? To be having, to be having the conversation. I mean, I'm, but you know, you take it that way. I mean, if you take that a step further and you could certainly ask like, would it have been more effective to like turn it into paper airplanes and toss them you know it would have been like it was are there does it really not matter what you did i mean i guess the the you know the metaphor there was 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 clear enough that um no one has to talk about that too too much but yeah yeah i mean uh, it's hard to i feel like we spend a lot of time talking about whether or not we should be outraged or whether or how exactly we should be reacting to certain things um, if having the conversation does bounce out to a win, then I guess she won, you know, I'm not, it seems sort of inevitably tied to Trump when she does that thing. And then someone, people are on TV on all the channels comparing it to things that Trump did or uh, tr- Trump junior tweets or whatever. Um, but I don't know what else there is to really say about it. She tore up the pages. It was, it was what it was. You know how some people are really good at making pair, paper airplanes and some people are really bad at it. Do we think? Nancy Pelosi would be in the first group or the second group. I had a really specific paper airplane I loved to make back in the day, and it was terrible, but it looked cool. I think I think it was just a lot of folding. It, it just looked it looked like a like a you know like a GoBot or whatever. It was like a really cool flying flying contraption that didn't actually fly. Yeah, I don't think she would be an overfolder, and I know exactly <laughs> what you're talking about. 
I think she would kind of find a happy medium. I'm not sure whether it would sell. Maybe we can ask her to do that for uh, Slow News Day or some other feature on The Ringer at some point. <laughs> David, let's talk about Mitt Romney because we said this for weeks. Without questioning why a Republican senator might vote to remove Trump from office, there were incredible media rewards to be gained from voting to remove Trump from office. Into the breach, step Mitt Romney, senator from Utah. Take it away, Mitt. You see, I support a great deal of what the president has done. I voted with him 80% of the time. But my promise before God to apply impartial justice required that I put my personal feelings and political biases aside. Were I to ignore the evidence that has been presented and disregard what I believe my oath and the Constitution demands of me for the sake of a partisan end, it would, I fear, expose my character to history's rebuke and the censure of my own conscience. What'd you make of that, David? Well, I mean, thank God he hasn't exposed his character to history's rebuke. I mean, that's... The top line, certainly above the fold what, in a what, newspaper. What, what is history's rebuke? <laughs> um, I, uh, I, I mean, congratulations to Mitt Romney. He did the right thing. He's the only Republican who had, I mean, I, I don't want to, I, fe- I feel ridiculous sitting here and trying to like tabulate the number of, of Republican senators who are too dumb to really know what happened uh, between the president and the, the and Ukraine. Um, I, I can only give them the benefit of the doubt that they're intelligent enough to have to be have been completely duplicitous and uh, and partisan in this whole thing. So congratulations to Mitt Romney for being the only person who had the guts or brains or whatever else to to actually vote the right way. Um, it's uh, the, the idea that he's, you know, the second kind the conversation that he keeps having is everybody's having is, you know, if he knew what he was in for kind of now being the sole target of Trump's ire and the Trump family's ire and everything else. And I'm sure he did. I mean, he said he did. And I, and I, I think Mitt Romney's going to be okay. You know, I think Mitt Romney's Mitt Romney can take some insults from like, you know, a president on the level of Donald Trump and still find ways to, you know, turn his hundreds of millions of dollars into hundreds of billions of dollars in his free time. You know, like I'm, I'm I'm pretty sure Mitt Romney's going to be fine. I think you can grant, Mitt Romney, you know, the idea that he is, he means everything he said. Mm-hmm. And that also that he is the guy who was, you know, you're right, faced with less electoral peril. I still, I mean, I just still remember John McCain whenever something, when, you know, John McCain plainly detested Donald Trump. But when push came to shove, John McCain had to get reelected in Arizona, which was slightly trickier. And so he, needed to make a show of supporting Donald Trump, at least on a few things when, when it counted. And Mitt doesn't have that. I will say, I kept seeing people on Twitter say, this is going to be in the first sentence of Mitt Romney's obituary. Did you see? I feel like, I feel like three or four people tweeted that. <laughs> I mean, kind of a weird, kind of a weird thing to be talking about. You know, Mitt Romney, who seems like a, you know, hearty man and going to be around for a while. Kind of a weird thing to be writing his obit already. Yeah. But, are we sure it's going to be in the first sentence? I mean, he's a pr- pretty significant, but this is not like, you know, the guy from Idaho voted to convict Trump, you know, <laughs> and, then we never, and then we never really heard from him again. Mitt Romney's a pretty significant political figure. So 
you know, I don't know if that's it, but um, yeah, I mean, I was, I, I was, I was pretty taken by that whole, by that whole thing. And, you know, again, maybe I'm falling prey to exactly the terms we outlined about, you know, the, the guy who does this or gal who does this is going to be a big hero, but, but uh, it was a compelling, and it was a very compelling speech. A lot's been made in the, in the aftermath about how it, it, it really rattled Trump and rattled the White House. And they were very, they were determined to have this be a, I mean, that no Republicans would vote um, to remove him from office um, because that would be a more compelling argument. I'm not even sure that makes any difference at all. I don't know that there's many people who would be inclined to vote for Trump that are going to be compelled by what Mitt Romney did. But, um, but yeah, I mean, it, it, it was, you know, Romney's speech was really compelling and, um, you know, let's, uh, but I, I agree with you about the obituary thing. I hope Mitt Romney lives long enough for this not to be the first line of his obit. I don't think there's somebody in the basement of the New York times that was rewriting last night, you know? It was just like, oh, whoa, whoa, whoa. We got <laughs> to do an edit here. Finally, David, I don't know if you saw this news. I don't know if you read much media news. But on Wednesday morning, The Ringer was sold huh? to Spotify, the audio streaming company. Terms not disclosed. The sale will become final this spring. Uh, Daniel Eck told Recode Wednesday, with The Ringer, we're basically getting the new ESPN. What Bill Simmons has accomplished in just a few short years is nothing short of extraordinary dot, dot, dot. It's not just his own podcast, but his whole network that's doing really well. The Ringer Union, of which I am a member, says in a statement, we anticipate a productive relationship with new management for all Ringer staff members, podcasters, writers, editors, illustrators, fact checkers, copy editors, social media editors, and video and audio producers. This is probably, frankly, going to be one of those conversations that people find both inoffensive and unsatisfying but we should talk about it here what was your what was your takeaway we're part of this right we're 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 we are we are members of this we are going to become in short order spotify employees what was your takeaway from this well am i, am I supposed to take the zoomed out view here or, or is this, or this time for a personal zoom, essay zoom wherever you want in a in a in a period of uh, i mean the the lifespan of this podcast uh, has seen a just stunning number of media acquisitions. Um, uh, this is an interesting one, right? I mean, I think that there's a lot of reason to be really positive um, about the future. Uh, and, um, you know, there's a lot of questions too. Um, if we If this were another company, I think that, you know, we'd probably justifiably be wondering what interest Spotify had in a, you know, in the the written division of the ringer.com <laughs> uh and the answer might be it might very well be that you know there's nothing to worry about at all so i mean i it's uh you know i think that that regardless i mean this is if we were talking about another company um the fact that or the way that we've talked about other companies uh, we're not talking about this anything being stripped for parts, and uh, we're not talking about um, licensing the Ringer name to CBD pro- products, and we're not even talking <laughs> about putting you know opening Ringer casinos anywhere. So uh, I'd say so far so good, but we've got a lot, a lot, uh, a long ways to go, and a lot more to figure out. I think that's right. To quote David Shoemaker. I also think um, we said this with Barstool under very dis- different circumstances last week. I said, I'm glad after the, 
you know, carnage we've seen in the media space over however long we've been doing this podcast or basically however long we've been working at the ringer that a media company has value at all because, you know, it was easy to think that looking around that media companies had no value at all. I am happy and eager and hopeful that writing has value to mm-hmm. all parts of the company too. I don't want to just, I don't want to just say writing because, but, but I think that's what you and I are no matter what we do here twice a week. That's what we are at heart. That's what we default to. That's what we would probably think of ourselves as. And again, to look around the media world, it's easy to be convinced that nobody cares anymore about that, you know, or that's just not valuable anymore. So that writing has value makes me happy. And I hope it, I hope it always has value. And, you know, to me, as we look over this whole deal and figure it out, and as you say, there's many things to figure out, many, many, many bridges to cross before this all gets, this all shakes out. It's supposed to again become official in the spring. That's one of the things I'm, that's on my mind or at the top of my mind. I know. I just want to co-sign that and just say that like for all this, you know, I mean, for all the justifiable skepticism, um, uh, you know, about what this scale could possibly mean for the value of writing. Um, I think much even even more so than previous moment. I mean, the mo- previous moments in recent history when you know various places pivoted to video and whatever else. I mean, at the ringer dot com, the value of writing is is just undeniable. I mean, there's nothing else that we do on the video side, on the audio side, anything else that doesn't like emerge almost directly from the uh, the crew of writers and editors that that we work with on a daily basis, and um, and. You know, whether or not, I mean, you're right. This is great for the perception of writing to have value. At The Ringer, you know, writing is maybe the most valuable thing that we have. So um, I'll be, you know, excited and interested to see where this all goes. Though not as valuable as David Shoemaker guessing a strain pun headline. (laughs) This is the Brinks truck backs up to the studio. Thank you. That was truly number one on the list. Last Friday's headline about Fox's obsession with Hillary Clinton was the hill they're willing to die on. Yeah. This week's headline comes from Steve Green over at IndieWire. It's from the Washington Post. The piece is by Lenny Bernstein, not the composer, presumably, of West Side Story and other things. Uh, Lenny is arguing something about public health and fear. He says, look, you've heard about all the scaremongering about the coronavirus from China, but the flu, the good old-fashioned flu, is much more dangerous. Killed up to 25,000 people in the last four months. This headline involves, David, a very old-fashioned word for flu, a word you might only have come across in something like Little House on the Prairie or Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde. What was the Washington Post's strained pun headline? Not... So it's about... Wait, the piece is actually about how the flu is more dangerous than coronavirus? Coronavirus? Well, prob- you know, to us anyway, to, you know, if you're if you're sitting at home in America in our privileged precincts of America, that's probably going to pose a more immediate danger to you. So it's not influenza. If it's something that's so outmoded, what is the, what are the use of, um, uh, um, starts with a G. What word we're looking for here. G gastro no <laughs> you will you will absolutely recognize this word when you I see know it. I will 
Um, Maybe I'll give you the word and then and then you can run from there. <laughs> yeah, well, why can't I think of this? I watch a lot of Little Do House remember, in the Prairie. I feel terrible about myself. An old-fashioned word for flu was grip. Oh, the grip. G-I-G-R-I-P-P-E. Uh, and the headline is what? In the grip of something or... Uh, uh, mm, getting there. In the uh, grip. You're telling America to... Get a grip? Yeah, get a grip, America. Oh, my gosh. That's 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 pretty out there, huh? I like it. I like it. I would read that. How many? Well, I know newspaper, like print readers, probably scale a little older than website readers. But how many people picking up the Washington Post know what the grip is? <laughs> he is David Shoemaker. I'm Brad Curtis. Research by Erica Cervantes and Chris Almeida. Production magic by Jim Cunningham. For the next month, we're basically in emergency mode thanks to the primaries. So we're back Tuesday night after New Hampshire. We hope with more lukewarm takes about the media. See you then, David. See you later, Brian. <laughs>